Welcome to the Pastor Ben Graham Podcast. Hello, everybody. Glad to have you joining us today. And uh, we're so thankful just for the opportunity to be able to together and talk with you today and share some uh, some wonderful things that the Lord has done for us. You know, uh, I remember the old song I used to hear when I was growing up. We sang called Count Your Blessings. And sometimes as a kid, when I'd get to grumble and my parents would start reminding me of that song. And uh, when I was mad, I wanted to be mad. I didn't want somebody to get my... Uh, to get my attitude to change. I liked being grumpy. I liked being mad. And uh, But when you start counting your blessings, it's hard to be upset. And my parents knew that, so they would try to get us to do that. And it's amazing. Today, as adults, sometimes we're still the same way. When we are mad or upset, we just want to be left alone so we can be mad and upset. And sometimes God will do something to remind us that uh, we really don't have much to grumble and complain about. And uh, we're such a blessed people this past Sunday, we shared with our church the blessing of uh, being in the country that we're in. Uh, we live in the greatest country on earth. There's no doubt about it. We have our problems. Uh, we go through issues, but we live in the greatest country on earth. And a couple years ago, I wrote a book uh, about that, uh, a book called Bring Back the Glory that really just talked about the blessings of the foundation of our nation and the need to uh, to bring back the, the, the pride, but not only that, really the stand that we have taken on the principles of God's Word. And uh, we wrote this book, and um, you can go to Amazon, you can go online and purchase the book. And uh, a few weeks ago, my son Jordan, who is uh, in uh, AIT training uh, down in Fort Bennings in the Army, he asked uh, when he got to make a phone call back, he said, Dad, would you send me uh, about four copies of your book? And uh, I thought maybe they were wanting them for target practice. I didn't know if maybe they had run out of something to shoot. And I said, yeah, I'd be glad to. And so I sent it, but I kind of sent it thinking they're not going to read this. It's really uh, about uh, uh, eight or ten chapters of just, you know, um, uh, of biblical principles of, of following God and getting back to, um, to serving Him. So we talked on Mother's Day with him. He got to call back, and uh, he said, Dad, he said, I read your book, and I really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate that. And, well, that was encouraging. Uh, first off, uh, the book came out in 2015, and my son is finally reading it. So that was a blessing. Secondly, uh, he said, Dad, I want you to say hi to somebody. And this guy read your book. And so he puts a guy named Francisco on there. Francisco is originally from Puerto Rico. Uh, he lived in New Jersey and is uh, in the same unit there with Jordan. And uh, he said, Mr. Graham, he said, your book was a blessing, encouragement. He goes, I got saved a few years ago. And he said, you know, one of the things that has really got me through um, this time has been my, my walk with the Lord. And um, he, he began to tell me, uh, just the, the blessings of, of what God had done in his life. Then Jordan told me about another young man named Garcia who's originally from Mexico, and um, Garcia's family was here. They were here illegally. They got deported. Eventually, Garcia got back and uh, was able to earn his citizenship, but of course, his family is still there in Mexico, and we, we know the stories of, of that. It's, it's heartbreaking sometimes. But De uh, Jordan said, Dad, one thing about Garcia and Francisco compared to most of the other guys is they're more appreciative uh, of things than most of the other guys are in the unit. Most of the other guys complain about uh, an MRE or complain about where they're sleeping, uh, you know, the barracks and all those things. He said, not these guys, because these guys came from not having much. 
And uh, he said, Garcia is probably the most appreciative of everybody because he came from Mexico, didn't have much. And uh, he said, and all of us, we, he said, we read your book. Now there's uh, other guys that read your book. He said, but we've been uh, reading our Bible together at night. We've been praying together. And uh, what an encouragement that was just to hear what God has been doing uh, in the hearts of these young men. And what thrills me is to know that we have young men and young ladies like that who are still going in and willing to serve our country. And as, as we've just celebrated Memorial Day, I'm thankful there are still those that are willing to put on the uniform and to say, yes, I'll uh, defend my country. And as a, as a uh, high schooler coming out of high school, I really wanted to serve in the military. My grandfathers did. I really wanted to. But um, I had surrendered to preach when I was 15. I had the opportunity to go into full-time ministry. And um, my dad shared with me, I had an opportunity to put on another uniform. And I'm thankful that I did that because it also... Uh, is a uniform that's about fighting for freedom, and uh, and that's uh, for the freedom of souls. Um, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, God called me to be a preacher. Uh, I'm thankful for every person who's put on uh, a military uniform and fought for our country. And uh, I stand with them. I stand for them. I support them. Uh, but I'm also thankful God allowed me to put on the uniform of a preacher if you will, and be able to carry the gospel. And today I have somebody, a special guest with me, who has been wearing that uniform of a preacher for, well, matter of fact, uh, he can tell you personal stories of Noah right after he got off the ark. Okay, maybe he doesn't go back that far, but he's he's been around a while. So glad to have Dr. Ron Ham uh, on here with me today. Dr. Ron, thank you for being with me today. My pleasure, sir. It is a blessing. I, I love to tease him, but if you walk into Dr. Ron's office, the man has more degrees than a thermometer. I mean, they're literally all over his wall. And I have to ask, I know you earned them, so that's wonderful. But do you, because you have so many, do you even remember what you have a degree in? Uh, well, yeah, I've got a bachelor's, of course, in, in ministry, uh, Christian education, uh, master's of theology, and a, uh, a master's of divinity, a demon, uh, master's of, of uh ministry and then i have a, a doctorate of ministry uh and then a phd in clinical christian counseling and uh, 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 uh <laughs> counseling sciences i'm sorry uh, uh, actually all in all i think i've got uh, seven degrees wow uh, and um and i have 19 certifications in in advanced uh studies uh, I'm a level four uh, domestic violence counselor with the uh, National Association of Forensic Counselors and a few other things. Uh, but yes, I did earn them. So I got to ask you, uh, and we'll go back to the ministry side in a minute, but let's just talk about the counseling side. What got you into counseling? What was kind of the start of all this? What got me into counseling, uh, I. My wife and I graduated from high school on June 4th, and we got married June 20th. 55 years ago, this coming June 20. Wow. And we were 18 years old, and uh, I was going into college at Middle Tennessee State University. And uh, a very intelligent, wise, and capable gentleman thought that I needed to be a pastor at 18 years old. So we got married in June and started pastoring a church on August 1st at 18 in Greenbrier, Tennessee. It was then that I discovered my wife uh, 
had had some trauma in her life, and uh, I won't go into all the details of that trauma, but we would lay in bed at night and hold hands and cry and and, uh, and discuss our problems. And I I decided that if I'm going to be counseling my wife, I might ought to find out what it is I'm doing and do it properly. And from that point on, I have been her counselor for 55 years, and then she became a counselor, and she's far better at it than me. <laughs> and she's counseled me through many, many difficulties. So, yeah, that's kind of the way it got started. Then it just branched out into a lot of different areas. Well, I was going to say thanks to uh, to you. Both my wife and I have been uh, not only uh, to school for counseling. We both earned our certificate for counseling, but I, I think she has a greater appreciation for it than I do. Uh, of course, you know, going into the ministry young, uh, like yourself, you know, you kind of get forced into counseling exactly. even when you don't want to, and we, even when you're not qualified to. Um, and, you know, I would say that counseling was not my favorite thing about ministry. Um, I'm glad that we've been able to encourage people and help people, uh, but not my favorite thing to do, but my wife absolutely loves it. She went through um, uh, the classes, especially the classes that you teach uh, all the uh, uh, the first year students, and um, I think it was, uh, um, and she would be okay with me saying this. It was not only uh, a learning experience, but it was a it was a helping experience for her. Yeah, we had a great time, and Candace is just a delightful lady. And uh, I told her after about the fourth uh, night of classes, I said, Candace, if I'm going to make you cry every single night, maybe this is not for you. <laughs> um, but that was a, a a joke between the two of us. She's a delightful lady. You you've been blessed of the Lord to have her by your side, and uh, I, I watched her work through a lot of her own issues. And that's what our first year is all about: is helping people get through their own issues. Because if you can't take care of you, it's hard to take care of somebody else. Right. It's uh, kind of like when you're on a plane and they tell you to put your mask on first, and exactly. then and then help somebody else and uh we we had two particular ladies I, I would say even really one particular lady and i won't i won't say her name but um you know she expressed um in class when i was going through the first year um she had been through a lot and and to be honest probably not a lot of churches uh probably not a lot of christian counselors would probably would have been okay with her uh sitting in that class because uh she went through a lot but I tell you what, she stuck it out. She finished it. She graduated. Um, and I think not only has she got help that she needed, but she's now helping others. Correct. And, and, uh, and in, interestingly enough, she's earning her doctorate this year. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, she stuck with it. And in the face of everybody telling her she could never do this, she just said, hold my Diet Coke and watch me. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit. I, I know the story, um, but, but I think our listeners enjoy hearing this. You know, everybody has a journey. Uh, everybody has a story, um, you know, and very rarely does somebody uh, start out uh, maybe at a young age knowing what they're going to do the rest of their lives. Every once in a while you hear somebody say, you know, I knew for, as a kid I was going to be a professional athlete or I knew I was going to be an actor or whatever. Most of us as a kid wanted to do those things, but we, you know, the NBA never called me to come like I wanted, you know. But um, but you, kind of like myself, but even younger than, my, than I was, you and I both started uh, ministry very young, uh, both preacher's kids, 
But we started out ministry young, but I think even for me, and maybe it's different for you, even though I started out in ministry, uh, I, I see myself doing a lot of other things. And, you know, looking back now, I see what God was working on, but, you know, I never would imagine. So I want to just ask you kind of about your start in ministry. Tell us a little about when you got started. And, um, you know, and even at that time, did you think for the rest of your life, this is what you're going to do? Or, Well, um the book is in process right now, uh, but my father was an alcoholic and an abusive uh, dad, an abusive husband, until I was five. And uh, when I was five years old, my mother literally prayed the devil out of him. And uh, from that moment on, uh, he accepted the Lord in the living room at about three o'clock in the morning, and our life changed dramatically. Uh, my father had a, uh, a, a, a an unbelievable conversion. He went from being a drunk every day and smoking three packs of cigarettes a day, and uh, he had been a sailor in World War II, and his job was to teach Marines how to cuss. <laughs> and so I grew up with every word that you can imagine. Um, and uh, but when the, when when my father accepted Christ as his Savior, uh, from that moment on. He never drank another drop of liquor. He never smoked another cigarette. He never said another cuss word. Nothing. I mean, it was a 180-degree turn. I got a brand-new dad. Then he started, he surrendered to the ministry, and, and, and by the time I was eight years old, my dad was pastoring a church in West Tennessee. And this was about the time uh, Elvis came on the scene, and all the little boys wanted to be Elvis Presley, and we all got a guitar. And I started playing guitar when I was nine and found out that I was a prodigy, a um, musical prodigy, and I could sing and play guitar. And, and a <clears throat> world-renowned evangelist came through our area and uh, held a revival, and I sang for his uh, service. And he asked my mom and dad if I could travel with him in the summer months. Now, summer months to him was May 1st to September 1st which four months, uh, at 10 years old. And uh, May 7th, 1957, I packed my guitar, my amplifier, and my little suitcase in the back of a 57 Mercury, um, pink and white, got a picture of it, and uh, took off for a four-month tour. Uh, and we, our job was to conduct revivals, street services, everything you think of, and establish churches. And that summer, we went all the way across to California, up into British Vancouver, Canada, back down to South Dakota. And we organized a church in Pierre, South Dakota, the state capital, in 1957. And in 1982, I was sent to Pierre to be the state bishop for the entire state of South, uh, of, uh, South Dakota, having planted that seed there at age 10. Age 11, uh, same thing. Age 12, we went, uh, we left. May 1st, drove to New York City, got on the Queen Elizabeth, went to England. We established churches in England, then across to Austin, Belgium, and we established churches in Crossroad, Germany, in Baden-Baden, uh, in, uh, up into Switzerland, established church in Switzerland, one in Holland. And I was a ripe old age of 12 years old doing this stuff all, all, all of a sudden. So... Uh, at that time, I wasn't being called into the ministry as I felt it. I was, 
I was happy with my music, happy with my singing, glad to be part of this team. And I wasn't the only person. There was always two other guys or three who played music every night, played for altar services, et cetera, et cetera. And, but I was being mentored every day of my life. And my father and I were World War II history buffs, and I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. I thought that was the most grandiose thing a guy could be. So I applied myself in school, found a little group called the Civil Air Patrol, joined that group at age 14, rose to be the commander of the Civil Air Patrol unit in my high school, and uh, won some free flight lessons and got an appointment to the Air Force Academy. In fact, at 16, I was narrating aerospace science films for NASA at Tullahoma. And my commanding officer, senior commanding officer, was Mary Anderson. And Mrs. Anderson was the first woman rated to fly jets in the state of Tennessee. She was an amazing lady and had great plans for me. I was on debate teams. I was on original uh, speech teams uh, all throughout my high school career. And my trajectory was to be uh, to go to the Air Force Academy uh, out of high school and become a fighter pilot. Weird thing happened when I was 16. I was praying one day, which is what I always did. And God spoke to my heart and said, um, I am choosing you to be a preacher of the gospel. And I didn't, didn't want to be. I grew up in a pastor's home and I knew what it was like. <clears throat> and I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, as God would have it, uh, that in those days, that was in the 60s, you only got to go to the academy uh, on a senatorial appointment. My senator died in my high school, in, in my senior year in high school, or at the end of my junior year. I was going to Washington in my senior year to be a, uh, an intern in uh, Congress up there, or uh, in the Senate, and then go from, straight from there to the academy. My senator died, and God said, I told you what I wanted you to do. So my wife and I made plans to go ahead and get married. Instead of waiting the four years at the academy, get married in the academy chapel, we went ahead and got married and surrendered to the ministry. She came kicking and screaming into it with me because her dad was a pastor too. But we've had 55 years of ministry. But I did start young, and I was mentored by my dad, by the gentleman I traveled with, and I was in the music business for a long time here in Nashville. And it's a long story, and the book's going to be great. I say God was preparing <laughs> you well, and I got to. Uh, I won't make you tell the story, but I'll just set it up for the book. Um, they'll they'll have to get the book to read about um, your selling uh, out of uh, uh, New York, uh, going over to Europe, yes. and uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, there might have been some sickness involved on that trip. Yeah. Uh, we sailed out of New York Harbor and uh, uh, got out in the, on, Queen Mary, on Queen Elizabeth. Uh, woke up the next morning with uh, severe hurting in my in my jaws, and went to the infirmary on the Queen Elizabeth. And they said, "Congratulations, you have a twin set of mumps." And so I spent the entire cruise going to England, five and a half days in the infirmary on the ship and they were not going to let me get off the ship in Southampton but we had a private car there to pick us up 
and uh, because we had a private car and I didn't have a fever and the doctor cleared me, I was able to get off the ship and get in the private car and we went to, to Bedford is where we were staying with uh, some folks there in uh, Bedford, England. So yeah, that was quite an exciting trip. I spent it all in the hospital looking out a porthole, but I did eat a lot of ice cream and a lot of sherbet. And it was a cool thing to do. Well, I guess that makes up for it. Well, I know there's some great stories. I've got to listen to uh, a number of your stories uh, (laughs) that are always very fascinating. I can't wait for the book to come out. I know you mentioned uh, uh, music. Um, I know that you're involved playing uh, guitar for a while with the Imperials. And uh, you sang uh, in several other groups. What probably... um, I guess what would have been one of the highlights or maybe the highlight uh, from a music standpoint in all your years? Well, of course, uh, I have to say that playing playing for the Imperials was an amazing experience, and, and I, I hold it dear. When I came home from Europe, my dad had taken a church here in Nashville and came home from Europe at 12 years old. My sister, who was six years older than me and my biggest fan, uh, bought me a new guitar and uh, with her meager earnings and... and uh, entered me into a contest at the Ryman Auditorium, uh, uh, and it was a talent show, and I won. And part of that was that I was there the first Friday night of every month for the Wally Fowler all-night singing, and I played for every one of the groups that were there at 12, and uh, became very close friends with the Statesmen, the Blackwoods, the the Lefevers, uh, uh, Wendy Bagwell and Sunlight, all those people, and just kind of grew up every month being with them at the Ryman Auditorium. Well, after after my year was up of appearing, uh, the promoter said, everybody wants you just to stay on and we want you to start touring. And uh, Mylon Lefevre, uh, the youngest son of the, of the Lefevres, he and I started a quartet, a teenage quartet. And we sang for the next three years together uh, on those uh, at the Ryman Auditorium and all over the South. We traveled all over the South with those guys. and. As as God would have it, uh, when I was 20, my wife and I went to a, an all-night singing, and, uh, and and Jake Hess walked up to me, who was my idol of gospel music, and he said, Hambone, what are you doing? And I said, well, at the, at the moment, not a whole lot. I came to hear the Imperials. And he said, uh, you still play the guitar, right? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, we need a guitar player. You're hired. And I said, well, wouldn't you like to ask me if I'm interested? He said, you're serious, right? And so uh, the next day I got on their bus and and, uh, and and took off with them and never had a rehearsal and went and did four television shows. And I think I may have gotten two chords right during the whole <laughs> television show. But good thing they could edit out the guitar if they wanted to. But it was an exciting time to be on the road with the Imperials, with uh, JKS, Jim Murray, uh, Armin Morales, Gary McSpadden, Joe Biscayo, and, and uh, uh, Larry Benson. Uh, Larry and Joe and I were the, one of the first bands, that live bands that uh, musicians were using uh, or that quartets were using on stage, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. I was with them about a year and a half. And my first son was born there, uh, was born when I was with the Imperials. And his first number one song as a songwriter was recorded by the Imperials. Oh, wow. So 20 years later, things come back around again. That's awesome. That's really neat. I didn't know that story. Yeah, uh, uh, the song was called Carry Your Heart to Me, and it's uh, a fabulous song and, and uh, 
he and uh, he and Gary McSpadden's son were born about the same time, and they used to we you know we laid in cribs beside one another. Well, my son came to Nashville, and and Gary's son Sean. Uh, had started a publishing company and a recording company, and Reggie went to work for him. And he said, Dad, you don't believe who I met? Uh, Gary McSpadden's son, Sean. I said, you you guys were babies together in the crib together, so you're good. <laughs> That's... So, you know, God has a, a way of letting our paths interweave and, and our lives interweave, and, and, and we, we take great pleasure in that. I know, uh, of course, Gary McSpadden passed away recently. Recently, uh, yes. And uh, Jim Murray was recently uh, stepped down. He was a, a minister of music uh, at a church here in town. And um, a lot of those guys are, uh, you know, are either have passed away or retiring. But, um, well, Jim's not retiring from singing. He sings every day on Facebook. And if you, don't, if you haven't tuned in to him, he sings a song of inspiration every day on Facebook. And he tours. He and his wife... Uh, Cheryl Nielsen's widow uh, married Jim, and uh, uh, Cheryl Nielsen was the original tenor with the Imperials, and he left the Imperials, and Jim took over, and now the two of them are married, and she's an amazing promoter, so she's promoting Jim, and they have a great great ministry, and he is one fine man. He oh, always absolutely. has been. We've yeah, been friends for 50, 50 plus years now. He's been a blessing. I've got to be with him several times since we've been here and uh, really enjoy them. And I have seen his songs, and uh, that's been a blessing. I didn't know if that was just something going on during the virus or, or what. But No, uh, no. It's, uh, uh, in fact, on, on Easter Sunday, you know, we, we, had to have, uh, we had to have service online. Right. And uh, my wife and I wanted to have communion together, so we tuned in to, uh, to our church and listened to you preach the Easter message and all that. And then after that was over, we pulled up one of Jim's songs that he recorded just for Easter, and he was our background music for she and I to have our communion together, and uh, quite a blessing. Amen. Quite a blessing. Yeah, he's a he's yeah. a phenomenal guy, uh, and a, and a blessing. I want to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, first off, uh, before the 2016 election, you and I hadn't known each other all that long, but uh, you were a uh, 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 pretty pretty positive that trump was going to win i was hopeful i'll, I'll say that um but uh he did and um one of the things that you know we've talked about many times um because in the last few weeks we've had um you know we've had the the wilson county gop chairman has him his wife attended our church a lot of people uh involved in political stuff has been here we've had a lot of um, from Marsha Blackburn to Congressman Rose to Governor Lee, you know, all of them have been on the property here for some event or for a service. Uh, Senator Pody is, you know, comes here quite frequently. Um, and because of that, I definitely have been labeled as a preacher that gets involved. Uh, although I don't necessarily preach politics every week, but I'm not afraid to, to uh, you know, to, to say what God's Word says is right, what God's Word says is wrong. And to me, it's not about social issues. It's really more about right and wrong. But um, but you've been around this a long time. You've been involved in, as a pastor, as a preacher in, in politics, you know, before I was even born. You you mentioned 1957, May of 1957. That was, uh, I was thinking about it, my dad was born in September of 57. So, right. <laughs> so you've been around that a little bit. I was bit. in ministry when your dad was born. <laughs> that's right, that that's right. Um, but I was thinking, you know, um, I think there's this big misconception 
and somebody again last night at Bible study, you know, who recently started coming said, you know, pastors are just, they're afraid or they're scared. What has been your, um, what has been your take on being involved as a pastor? Uh, and maybe has there been a, a certain line that you've drawn for yourself not to cross or what's kind of your take on that just in being involved as a pastor? Well, uh, there, there are several areas of that I would like to cover quickly. Uh, first of all, I, I grew up as a Democrat, and um, back when Democrats were what Republicans are now, pretty much. Uh, but um, and I was uh, I was active with uh, the civil rights movement uh, because I grew up in the mission field, going over and, and living with with uh, people of color, um, that kind of thing. And so I was active in the civil rights movement. I believed in it. I still believe in it. Um, uh, I did not ever get to meet Dr. Martin Luther King, but I sure did read everything he wrote and listen to every speech he ever gave. Um, uh, to me, that was an important part of being in ministry was to break down the middle wall of partition. Jesus did that for us as far as salvation is concerned, but we as human beings have a problem trying to tear down walls of denomination, of, of ethnicity, of all of these kinds of things. So that was that was my original contribution was getting involved in that. So I've been involved in politics for a long time. Uh, I, I was good friends with Jimmy Carter uh, when I pastored a church in Atlanta and I was associate chaplain at Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta for two years and was friends with Jimmy Carter, uh, was a supporter of his because of the social programs that he did in Georgia. However, at that time, he was pro-life, he was pro-family, all of those sorts of things. So in Scripture, and this is what I tell my congregation, this is what I tell my counselees, this is what I tell my students, Christians are called to vote on two issues. We are mandated by Scripture to vote on two issues. One is the sanctity of life, the other one is the sanctity of the home. Okay. Those are the two things that we are mandated to vote for or to be, uh, be outspoken for. I am an avid, active anti-abortionist, and I make no apology for that. And I have 10 grandkids, five adopted, five biological. We're the family that buys one, gets one free. But we have a Chinese granddaughter. We have, you know, and then we have a foreign uh, child uh, we say he's from Mississippi, um, <laughs> and so <laughs> that's my son's joke. Uh, there he is, two two children. Um, my oldest, my 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 youngest son's oldest child. Uh, his mother was one of my counselees, and she got pregnant by date rape, and she was considering abortion, uh, suicidal. I counseled her through that. I was there when the baby was born two years later. My son fell in love with her and the child and uh, married her. And uh, sometimes I feel like I saved his life. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very adamant about anti-abortion issues. I cannot back any candidate or any party whose platform is pro-abortion. Cannot do that. I just absolutely cannot scripturally find any reason. I hear about rape. 
my grandson is a product of race. I interviewed the, the birth father. I know him. I counseled with him. And he said, I don't know why she didn't have me arrested. I raped her. And I said, you're a fortunate man. I would have. And, and, of course, you know, with him giving me, me giving him counsel, I couldn't call cops and tell them, you know, because it's a privilege. But, but and, and so, and I may be saying too, too much, I don't know, but, but I just want you to understand that that's one thing that Christians, we, and we never protest that stuff. We're outraged today by a person being obviously killed by a, a police officer. But today, 6,000 babies were aborted across the United States, and nobody's outraged by it. Nobody goes and protests in front of the abortion clinics. We don't do that. We don't get involved. And that, to me, is, is unconscionable. And I've made an effort all of my life to stop that practice. Same thing with, with, with the family, the family unit. I've spent my life, for the last 40 years of it at least, trying to keep marriages together and keep families together and promote that. Uh, uh, Chuck Colson did a, 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 Chuck Colson was big in the prison uh, ministry before he died. And he did a survey and we know that children from uh, blended families uh, are twice as likely to go to prison as children from uh, the typical American family of two parents who stayed together. Children of single parents, of single moms, are four times as likely to go to prison than, than the kids of blended families. So my goal has always been, how do I help this family stay together? How do I help them? I've challenged every student I've had over the last 20 years, and there have been many of them, hundreds of them, and I've challenged every one of them, go to the bookstore and look up any book you can find on how to be a blended family. And I've challenged all of my students to write that book. You know that. You sat there and heard that those very words. And nobody can write that book, and there are very few of them in the bookstores on that subject because it's very difficult to write that book. So in politics, I am always going to be behind the party that is pro-life, and pro-family. I'm always going to be that because that's what the scriptural scripture mandates. And I know people say, well, I can be, I can vote for this party, but I don't have to agree with, with all of the parts of their platform. And I don't, I can't find the logic in that. And I, I, I don't consider myself a very a hugely intelligent person. I've done a lot of studying in my life, but logic has to play a major role in everything I, I think or say or do. And I can't find the logic in that. And, and, and how can you accept the platform of a party that has broken lives, broken families? And I've counseled way too many women who've had, had abortions. And the first thing I always say was, uh, what was their name? And you have no idea how many of those women look at me and go, his name is David, or her name was Susie because in their heart of hearts, they know it was a human being and they give it a person. So I take these people out sometimes and we have a burial for that child. The, 
the body has long since been destroyed, but we put something, scripture or something in a box and we have a burial and we, we give that child a proper burial. And some of these women are dealing with three, four, five abortions. Uh, I had a, a, a lady come from an abortion clinic uh, in, uh, at UT uh, for anti-abortion. And she had had four abortions in her life and now she's an, an anti-abortionist. And uh, she came here and taught our ladies and taught our people uh, about this horrific thing that's going on. And so I see outrage over someone who got killed who shouldn't have gotten killed. I agree with that. I see that outrage. But I don't see the same outrage for families being ripped apart and children being killed in the womb. And now, outside the womb, which is beyond my ability to to give any legitimacy to. It's just beyond that. And so um, I'm always going to say to a candidate, I don't care who it is, at what point do you consider life being uh, starting? And if they say anything besides at the point of conception, I'm pretty much off them. Yeah. And, uh, and I know that seems like a hard stand, but that's my stand. And one of my old Bible teachers taught me when I was a kid. He said, Never have a principle in your life that you can't change when it's impacted by the Scripture. And so some of the things that we grew up believing traditionally, when the Scripture impacts that belief system, I have a, I have a responsibility to change my principle. And I will change principle for Scripture any day. No matter what I've said, I tell people all the time, I pastored a church when I was 18, and my fervent prayer is that God never lets anybody remember a word I said for those first two years. <laughs> those sermons had to be, they had to be a learning experience for me, but I, I, I had a lot of elderly people in that church, and they would smile and nod and say, bless your heart, you know, <laughs> you'll grow up. But they, and they were precious to me. So I, I hope I'm not being no, well, you know, verbose one, with this, but that's that's my political stance. I, I think um, part of the abortion aspect is, unfortunately, uh, even Christians have gotten so used to hearing about it, it doesn't phase them anymore. Um, you know, the the Norma McCorvey, who is the Roe versus Wade, you know, she actually never had an abortion, but she was used to be, you know, the poster child. They have a documentary coming out on her uh, this week. But, and, and my understanding, I read a, a book sharing, you know, she gave her life to the Lord later on, and a wonderful story. And, and I think one of the things that churches have to understand is, is I'm thankful that people can find forgiveness who've been through abortion. Um, God can restore them, and you've helped many of them with that. Um, but on this side of it, we've got we've to stand against it. And, you know, um, there's a whole lot of people in the political world on one party who out, I mean, just they're not even ashamed to say they're okay with killing babies inside the womb and now even outside the womb. Then you have people on the other party who, you know, say they're against it, but never do anything to prove they're against it. And we're slowly, uh, I think, growing comfortable. Thank the Lord for that, that movie that came out last year uh, dealing with abortion that really impacted, I think, a lot of people. Uh, a lot of I heard of a lot of abortion clinic workers who actually quit their job after seeing that, you know, which I'm thankful for. And as far as the family goes, 
uh, one of our former senators in the state, her church, after the, uh, the Supreme Court ruling about same-sex marriage came down, the pastor got up the next Sunday and said, now we have people on both sides of the aisle, so as a church, we're going to choose not to talk about it, uh, you know, because we don't want to offend anybody. And that former senator told me, said, um, I thought there was God's side and then the wrong side. What do you mean they're both sides of the aisle? And right. uh, they said, we had to leave that church because of it. I'm, I'm glad they were willing to take a stand for it. it the reality is, is, you know, um, to me, it's God's side or the right side, the word of God's side, scripture side, and there's the wrong side. And if you're on that side, I don't care what party you're in. If you're on the side that goes against God's word, you're wrong. And that, to me, is where pastors need to stand up. But I think so many pastors are worried that they're going to lose church members or, you know, they'll use the excuse about the tax-exempt status, which nobody's ever lost that because of taking a stand. And, and they're not going to. No, not at all. And we make a lot of excuses for why we won't take a stand. But I think it's important. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is, is get people engaged. Of course, we talk about on this podcast, um, whether you're in the ministry, you're in the music business, you're in television, acting, whatever, you know, we like to know how people engage their faith in that. But I think it's important, too, that, that God's people learn to get engaged in what's going on as a nation because, uh, you know, we're good at complaining about the problems, but we very rarely try to do anything to fix them. Yeah, it's called, uh, uh, you know, we curse the darkness, but we don't like to strike a match. Here in the state of Tennessee, today, today, this day that we're, we're recording this podcast, we need 10 thousand are you hearing me 10,000 foster homes and the people who least in, in who, who are least involved in foster parenting are Christians we need 10,000 foster homes we need a change in the abortion laws my oldest son had to go to China to get a baby and it cost him 10 grand to, to in, in fact, he was holding her one day in the line at Costco, and, and, and she was patting his face and loving on him. And, and this woman said, you, you just can't buy that. He said, yes, ma'am, I did. cost me $10,000 on a trip to China. And, and, but my kids had to go to China to be able to qualify to adopt their first child. And then their second adoption was done privately with a young lady who wanted them to take her child. Uh, it's extremely difficult to adopt. It's not that hard to become foster parents. It, there's some qualifications for it, obviously, and some training for it, obviously. But we don't. We would rather curse the darkness than strike a match and make a difference in the world. And our adopted grandkids are, are amazing. Now, my grandfather was adopted, and so adoption has come all the way down through our family. My sister always told me I was adopted, but, you know, I look too much like my dad, I guess. I don't know, but, um, and sound like my mom. But, uh, but, but, you know, she always tried to make me believe that. But it was, uh, but adoption's been in our family for generations, and we don't, we don't find a problem with it. We just embrace them and embrace adoption, and, and we love it. Uh, but so many families are afraid what if I get the wrong child? Well, what if you get one that you bring home from the hospital that has a rare disease, like our Chinese granddaughter does, uh, nonverbal, eight, 17 years old, getting ready to turn 18, just graduated high school, and has no idea what she's been doing for 18 years. But she's been there, and she's been doing it. Uh, my son and his wife have become uh, special needs parents 
on, on they had and they had no idea they were going to do that. We went over there to get a cute little Chinese girl to bring back and pray that she was a prodigy on the piano and all that kind of stuff. And what and they got somebody that came in. It requires twenty four seven care and wrecked their careers, and bankrupted them. It's okay. She's their daughter. And and these are our children. And and the church has been. And and I don't mean to, I don't mean to bash the church. Okay. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. We could have been doing so much more all of these years with foster parenting, with adoption. The adoption laws in this country are horrible. It's, it's, it is amazingly easy to kill a baby. It is almost impossible to, uh, to save one's life. And to it's adopt. amazing, too, because I saw the numbers. Uh, most of the kids, foster homes, adoption, so many of them end up in really bad situations. Absolutely. When there's families who, you know, would care for them that, that struggle to get a child. I saw today in the news, and I commend your son and daughter-in-law for what they have done and taking a child and then having, you know, finding out she's special needs, but just, you know, they've embraced that. There's a family that's kind of well-known on Instagram. They've got a big following they had four children, but they had adopted a, an Asian boy a couple of years ago. Well, they found out he has autism, and they've replaced him. They've rehomed him. They've moved him. Just did that this week. And, boy, the backlash. I'm glad that people are getting upset about it. Uh, but there's two things I thought about. One, it's sad that because he has some special needs, they all of a sudden don't want him because it doesn't fit in their perfect picture of their family. The second thing, though, is, is while these people are giving him a lot of backlash, I, I I wanted my, my thought I wondered was what have you done to help a child because you can be real critical of other people but exactly. what have you done you exactly know? My, my grandparents you know um, had multiple foster kids that lived with them and they adopted uh, Jeff who um, died when he was 16 from an accident but uh, um, I think it's so important we, we've talked about it we my wife and I've looked into adoption and and um, there's a great um, there's a great organization that I just was introduced to a few days ago uh, here uh, that works to help people be able to uh, foster uh, children and, and um, um, there's a there's a growing need you know Tennessee I don't know where we ranked now a few years ago we were number five in the most liberal state on abortion at 40 weeks lady could come across state lines that her husband's consent Correct. all that and our former governor I had a conversation with him one day and I said how is it we're you know Republican House and Senate and governor and all, all of us are supposed to be you know pro-life why is it that that we're here and he said well it takes time and i said but how long you know we've we've been holding these for a while he said well it just takes time and i said the problem is it seems like whenever there's laws that come out that could begin to start preventing it you always seem against it and he didn't really like my answer on that and that was kind of when our conversation ended but you know i i asked that too and i i love our new governor but i hope that he will uh continue to do all he can and uh, I know we have uh, some legislators like Senator Pody who are doing all they can to try to make a difference in this area. And I know others because we we've got to value life. And, you know, if we get to pick and choose who's valuable and who's not, you know, pretty soon it may be our life that's considered not valuable. And it will be. Right. And it will be. Um, I'm 73 years old. At some point, somebody's going to say, you know what, you're old enough now. You've lived a good life. You need to get out of the way and let somebody else come in. And and we talk about overpopulation. We are nowhere near overpopulated in this country. There are vast expanses of land. Um, Somebody mentioned to me one day that just in the state of Nevada, 
we could take every citizen of the United States and put them in the, in the state of Nevada and still have room for people to be there. Now, I don't know how true that is. I didn't measure it out with a measuring stick, but <laughs> somebody more who had more time on their hands than I did kind of figured that out. We don't have an overpopulation problem in the world. We really don't, and we don't need to be worried about population control. We don't need to be worried about any of that. What we need to be worried about is how do we, how do we make life better for people? Uh, my grandkids, I've got uh, my, I've got, I've got two that are 13. Uh, they're 24 hours apart. I've a biological granddaughter and an adopted grandson, and they're 13 years old and they're 24 hours apart. And they're the cutest things you've ever seen. And they, they think they're twins. They grew up together, and they love each other dearly. And, uh, and if somebody came in and told my granddaughter, "Did you know your cousin is adopted?" She would look at him and go. And your point is what? <laughs> you know, he's my cousin. His last name is Ham. And what are you what are you trying to what are you trying to achieve? I told my oldest grandson the other day, he and I were talking. He's by the way, he speaking of Jordan going into the army, I'm so proud of that young man. Had him as a student and uh, uh, what a what a fine job his mother did raising him. <laughs> and, and I'm glad Amen. you left her alone yes. let her do her job. Um, I I say the same thing about my sons, but uh, my grandson graduated from high school and went down and joined the army and has already raised his right hand and swore to defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I'm very proud of him for doing that. And we had a talk. And I said, uh, I said, son, you know, you're adopted. He said, yes, sir. I said, you know what? I can give you a name. And I did. What you do with that name is up to you. I can't give you the respect that goes with that name. I can't give you the character that goes with that name that we hope in our family that will be what it should be. You have to earn that every day of your life. But don't do it because of your name. Do it because it's the right thing to do. We have a motto in our family. My grandfather started, actually. It says, I hope to become the man that my father never was so that my sons may become the men that I will never be. Hmm. And my grandson said, Pop, I'm having that tattooed right over here on my side. And I said, no, you just missed the point completely. You don't need to tattoo it on your side. Put it right across your memory. I want to achieve and be, become the man that my father never was. How do we do that? We do that by, by engaging, if you will, in, in, in learning how to have character in our own lives and how do we treat other people and how do we, how do we bless them. And uh, the, the engaging of the church, in my view, needs to be that we become proactive about the things that we yell about all the time. And yeah. it's not enough to preach against abortion. It's something else again to say, when this young lady came in my office and she said she was considering abortion, I said no. We're not going to do that. And then I put her over my nursery. An unwed, pregnant mother, and I put her in charge of the nursery. And one of my elders came to me and he said, do you think that was a wise decision? I said, yeah. This girl's getting ready to have a baby. She don't have a clue about babies. She needs to learn about babies. She said, but you put her in charge. I said, yeah. She, number one, didn't do anything wrong. She was wronged. But she's asked God for 
every kind of forgiveness under the sun. So what do you think? I need to wait until she's had the baby and then put her in charge of something? Well, is that a good example? I said, oh, I think it's a marvelous example for our kids to look at us and say, you know what, pastor and that church, even if I make a mistake, won't throw me away. And they won't push me over in the corner. They will include me and they will bring me forward and they will let me engage in ministry. And you know what? That girl was my nursery director for nine straight years. Wow. And she loved that, and they loved her. The kids loved her, and my son and uh, uh, worked with her, and he, he, he always carries as a military guy. He's always carrying. And their associate uh, that worked with them was a Green Beret from um, Fort Campbell, and he and his wife were there, and, of course, he was carrying. And we had the safest nursery on the planet. <laughs> I got a Green Beret in there. I've got a... I got an Air Force sergeant in there, and nobody's going to get our babies, I can tell you that right now. But it's it's called, you're bringing it up, it's engaging. We engage, we pull these people in and engage them. Well, I find that the churches sometimes, you know, we talk about help, we talk about being against things, but usually we don't put a lot of action to it, and I think that's key. And by the way, I did some research. So New York City is 22 square miles with a little over 8 million people, Okay. So America's population is 328 million people. So that means we need 902 square miles if we were to duplicate New York City and fit everybody in there. Tennessee is 42,000 square miles. Oh, my goodness. Just to give you an idea of, of what kind of space we actually have. Now, I know most people don't want to live on top of each other like they do in New York City. But the point is, is you know, I just this past Sunday went through the numbers. In the last 25 years, the growth that we've seen, they estimate there was about 200 million people living when Jesus was here on earth. And if you look at the last 100 years, the growth that the world has hit, most of it's been in the non-developed or uh, lower-developed uh, countries. Sure. But we actually live in probably the greatest time. Uh, and this was the challenge Sunday I gave to the church, was is with the communication skills that we have, the, the technology we have available, um, with everything that we have at our fingertips, we live in probably the greatest time to be able to share the good news of Jesus. That's without question. On top of that, we live in the greatest country. I mean, we're why would God allow us to be born at this time, you know, in this country, you know, is beyond anything that we deserve. There's nothing special about us over somebody in, in Europe or Asia, but yet God allows us to be, be born here. And to whom much is given, much is required, you know. And we, I think, have a great responsibility to do much for Christ, but we're such a blessed people. And I've absolutely enjoyed having Dr. Ron Ham on here today. We... Uh, could speak for hours, uh, and sometimes we do. Uh, if you ever want to just come hang out at the office, and uh, we get into hour-long conversations. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, it usually it usually starts out with something just uh, mellow, and then we get into some really funny stuff, and ultimately it gets into spiritual stuff, usually. And uh, we have a great time uh, because we have uh, a pretty similar life, just to be honest, and passions. Right. I just want to tag one thing. You started off by saying about people complaining and all that kind of stuff, and I just want to tag it uh, on the end. The great, the great man Solomon, uh, the great writer, said, "Wherefore doth a living man complain?" And so, at my uh, advanced age, uh, I try to get up every morning. There are aches and pains in places I didn't know I even had on my body. 
and uh, I try not to be a complainer. I try to be a, a man of gratitude and thank God every day for uh, being here and, and went through a heart attack, went through some major surgery, and I'm still here. And, and uh, you've been through that same thing. <laughs> and, and you're half my age. I don't understand how you got so advanced Appar- all the way. Apparently, the people you passed for were kinder to you than me. I'm just uh, That's probably <laughs> it. Uh, 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 blame it on your church. Uh, that's always I, a good I was gonna way say, out. I yeah. probably just wasn't as smart at how I handled everything as you were. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know what? I, I think you know that definitely brings a different perspective and you're right um you know being thankful for what what we have you you enjoy life a lot more if you go around with a heart of gratitude versus a heart of truth of, of complaint absolutely well thank you for being here today thank you all for listening and uh we want you to know that we love you god loves you and look forward to talking to you next time god bless Thank you for listening to the Pastor Ben Graham Podcast. For more information, please visit PastorBenGraham.com.